Two Designers Walk Into a Bar is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. For more information about our show or to discover more podcasts you'll enjoy, visit evergreenpodcasts.com. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. <laughs> hey, let's, uh, let's sync up real quick. Because uh, this is gold, Jerry. Would you like to start today? Uh, Sure. <clears throat> go, go ahead. Intro, take one. Minna Today Fluis. we can. <laughs> Christ. <laughs> Intro, take two. <laughs> Hey everyone, it's Elliot and Todd. Welcome to Two Designers Walk Into a Bar, an ongoing conversation about pop culture and iconic design. Today, we continue talking about the formation of the pop art scene. And the introduction of its greatest superstar. He made the lowbrow highbrow. And along the way, agitated a lot of people. So let's raise our glasses to the master manipulator himself back here in the bar. This is great. We're talking about pop art. And question for you. See how good your memory was from the last episode. Oh, boy. Okay, a quiz already. Yeah, I mean, we talked about a couple oddball things that led to the formation of, starting to lead to the formation of the pop art scene. What stood out to you? Well, of course, the church. I think the biggest thing was that there were all of these happenings in Greenwich Village, there was a sort of scene, but it wasn't really yet a scene. And there were these people who are starting to collide with one another. And they were really, like the Beats, starting to push back against what they saw as this encroaching culture. Um, you know, really just kind of conservative and, and sort of smothering. And they wanted a way to push back at it. Yeah. They were people with jobs uh in in the commercial creative field mm-hmm. and they were looking at that as uh, inspiration mm-hmm. yeah they painted billboards and all kinds of crazy yeah, stuff yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, did layouts and stuff you know another thing that i thought was really kind of interesting about that that whole formation was a real dichotomy like you said greenwich village was sort of the hub of where pop art was, uh, the Upper West Side was really where the beats were camped out around um, Columbia, right? Yeah, 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 yep. Yeah, that's cool. The other thing was just how amazingly pervasive television became 
in just a decade. Yeah, yeah, westerns and uh, just family sitcoms, westerns. You know, it's just really these two or three things. And then, as you said, uh, TV became more imaginative. I believe the word you used was untethered. So it became a little bit yeah, more surreal, yeah. right? You had people trapped on islands, genies coming out of bottles, all kinds of things like that. Yeah, yeah. Shit could happen. <laughs> I, you know, I, I know you love going to flea markets and you're, you know, mm-hmm, always mm-hmm. rubbing on stuff there. But I, I, I just hey, I hope you're, hey, I hope you're hey. up to date on your shots. Let's put it that way. <laughs> cool. Well, yeah, today, you know, we're going to dig a little bit more into the formation of this scene. And um, there was a guy that was kind of missing from our previous episode, right? Yeah, yeah, you talked about him, and then you never talked about him. Yeah, well, where was Andy in all this? Right. Well, if you remember, I said he was both part of the scene and not part of the scene. And I think, you know, what... We certainly are not doing a biography on Andy Warhol or The Factory because that he's done plenty of those himself. <laughs> right, he doesn't um, need our help. <laughs> but what we were interested in, you know, when we were talking about this was how did this scene happen? How did the how did the factory become the factory? And so for me it was interesting to learn more about his background and he was uh, he was an emerging artist. Because at the dawn of the 1960s, uh, he was 31 years old then, Mm -hmm. and he was, by multiple accounts, the most successful and highly paid illustrator in New York City. Yeah, we had talked about this. He was doing illustrations for shoe companies. He was illustrating jazz albums. At 100 bucks a pop. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. For the shoe company. Yeah, he had that beautiful lettering that you had talked about in a lot of his illustrations that maybe his mom did, maybe he did. his mom probably worked on. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. if it was drawings of angels or cats, she probably did those too. Yeah, I love all this. So um, he, while super successful as a commercial artist, was looking to emerge as a as a fine artist and he wanted those connections from the other folks that were his contemporaries at the time particularly Rauschenberg and Jasper Johns who sort of a little bit ahead of him in that scene Um, but to many he represented the ambitions of pop art he emerged from poverty Uh, everyone knows his family uh, were Eastern European immigrants living in Pittsburgh Uh, He had a very sickly childhood, um, very shy, uh, super anxious, and he went on to elevate work of everyday lowbrow common objects and packages, news clips, and to highbrow uptown museum art. And in doing so, one thing that we like about him is he elevated himself to pop culture icon status, right? Yeah, sure. So... He's sort of uh, artist as celebrity, but to your point, he wasn't um, this lofty, fine artist that people were used to. He was taking these common elements that were these cornerstones of consumer culture, like we talked about, things everybody was familiar with, but he sort of spun them in a new and interesting way that made people stop and take notice, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you mentioned uh, the jazz album covers, too, and he did a lot of those. Mm -hmm. And he got to be super successful because he worked his ass off. 
basically. Mm-hmm. And we'll we'll talk about this a little bit, but I think this is one of the myths, especially during the, the factory era, right? Is that, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. oh, he just sat around and he had these people coming and going and he never actually did anything. Well, I, I think, I, I do think that starts to play out later, but I think there were reasons for that. But go ahead, sorry. Oh, I, 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 I was just going to say, but to your point, when he was getting started, he... He was he grounded out. He was working all yes. the time. Yes, yeah. So he graduated high school when he was 16. Um, and then he attended Carnegie Institute of Technology, which is now Carnegie Mellon. Mm-hmm. And uh, graduated from there at 20 and then moved to New York, where he began working as a commercial artist. And, you know, he was, if you've seen his early drawings, he was really good at drawing. And he, he had this penchant for celebrity culture and glamour and Mm -hmm. again he just had this dream this this ambition and oddly enough his first project was for glamour magazine it was for an article uh, entitled success is a job in new york (laughs) oh wow that's so perfect perfect i know yeah and here's the funny thing, like, you know, uh, people know uh, his birth name is Warhola. Mm-hmm. Uh, by accident, the magazine's typesetter left off the last A at the end of his surname, and he became Andy Warhol, and he just kept it like that. Oh, that's amazing. I never knew that. Yeah, it was it was purely by accident, and he was like, yeah, okay. Slightly less ethnic, <laughs> perhaps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so throughout the 50s, he was working for well-known magazines like Vogue, Harper's Bazaar, New Yorker. And he produced advertising and window displays for local New York retailers and gained some local notoriety, even winning some awards uh, from Art Directors Club and the uh, AIGA, too. Heard of those organizations, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, decent organizations, right? So he earned a pretty solid reputation in the fashion illustration world, mainly for a company called Miller Shoes. He would get, I think I mentioned this a minute ago, get about 100 bucks a pop for each drawing he did of shoes or hats or scarves. But it added up, man. By the end of the 50s, he was bringing in about 100 grand a year from shoe drawings. That is well over a million dollars a year in today's money. So oh, not wow. bad for drawing shoes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Todd, that reminds me, I, I got to go. I got to. Uh, rather than do this, I need to finish my shoe drawings. You got to go do some shoe drawings. Well, yeah. good luck with that. <laughs> yeah, good. Yeah. <laughs> um, I hope you get a hundred bucks a piece too. Yeah, me too. Uh, he had enough actually to buy his first townhouse. It was a four-story townhouse on Lexington Avenue. He bought it for sixty thousand dollars. Isn't that something? That is. And even in today's money, because um, I know you love to to do the conversions on that. I do. That's. That's still, and I'm gonna say only, only six hundred and fourteen thousand. Oh, is in that today's all? money? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's on the market for a lot more. I checked, and it's like you know, multiple millions. But at the time, he got a pretty good deal. And check this: he put thirty thousand down on the thing. So fifty percent down. Yeah, fifty wow. percent down. Um, yeah, and so the funny thing is his mom moved in with him. Mm. She just showed up, you know, from Pittsburgh one day. And she's <laughs> like, hey, you know, I'm here. And um, she was a decent artist as well, and she would assist him with his drawings. She was, I would say she was his first superstar, wouldn't you? Probably, yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely. She would continue to live with him for 
years, decades, well, she finally, um, she died in, I shouldn't say finally died, but she ultimately died in 1972. Okay. Now, here's the funny thing. He was working in the fashion industry and was rich, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in the creative field, but he would slip around the city in these ill-fitting clothes and worn-out shoes, carried his <laughs> drawings in a grocery bag. He was he earned the nickname, you're gonna love this, Raggedy Andy. <laughs> oh, that's that's amazing. I love that. I absolutely love that. Yeah. So this is funny because I'm a huge fan of Basquiat. And mm-hmm, when mm-hmm. you think about Basquiat, he was often presenting in that way, right? He would kind of schlep around New York and have, you know, ill-fitting clothes and kind of always look disheveled and so forth. So I wonder if Andy Warhol sort of had an affinity for Basquiat because he sort of... He reminded him of... Yeah, a little oh, yeah. bit, a young, yeah, ambitious yeah. artist. Yeah, kind of really challenging the, the, the norm, as it were. That's a, that's a really good observation. He certainly, young Andy had a lot of affinities for uh, a number of people. And there was a common theme that keeps weaving through his affinities. And I want to, can I tell you a quick story about uh, a, a person you mentioned in the Beats episode? Oh, uh, Mr. yeah. Truman, I would love this. Truman Capote. Oh, if Truman Capote's involved, I am sure there is a story. Yeah, it, get, it gets funny. Um, so, uh, soon after he arrived in New York, he, he started to pursue a serious art career, and it didn't happen for a while. But at the same time, he became obsessed with our friend, Mr. Truman Capote. Okay. And, and he began to write him fan letters, like daily, daily fan letters. Oh, wow. And send him drawing, drawings. I shouldn't say send him drawings. Yeah, he you sound him like drawings. Simon and his Chuck drawings. I know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And, and check this out. He even waited outside his house just to talk to him. Oh, so, so where it was, did Capote also live in New York? He did, yeah. Okay. Did. <laughs> and I guess he just, what, looked him up in the phone book and then just yeah, went to his Yeah, yeah. And just, like, hung outside. And, I mean, he stalked Truman Capote, right? Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, so it was funny. Um, it's in so much that his very first show... In the early 50s, uh, he did 15 drawings based on the writings of Truman Capote, but none of the pieces sold. (laughs) (laughs) And I know what you're thinking. What did Truman Capote have to say about all this? Yeah, the the master of the Bon Mots, right? Yeah, what what was his comeback? And he Bon Motted the hell out of Andy. At first, his part, he really wanted nothing to do with him. Sure. He basically ignored him. There's a quote he said of Andy. He's one of those people, you know, nothing is ever going to happen to. Just a hopeless born loser. <laughs> Far as I know, he was just a window decorator. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah. I mean, hello, Truman. Yeah. It's, Man. To bastardize uh, his quote about Kerouac. It's like, that's not art. <laughs> that's decorating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. He's a born loser. Um, yeah, yeah. Obviously, he didn't, uh, didn't mince words there. <laughs> no, no, it was it was pretty clear, wasn't it? Um, I will say they went on to become friends when Andy became super famous. Gee, <laughs> go, <laughs> figure. <laughs> go figure. Was well, really generous of Mr. Capote. Um, <laughs> Found time in his schedule. He did, yeah. Um, from smoking and drinking and bon mot creating. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> but, you know, as I said, um, Andy was, um, uh, I said in a previous episode of the Island of Misfit Toys, he was the misfittest of all the toys. So this obviously stung him and fed into his massive insecurities and his crippling anxiety. You sure, know? yeah. Yeah, I'm sure it bruised his ego. Yeah. Uh, but this would become a theme in helping to shape how bizarrely Andy Warhol would iconically be and how he would go on to grow uh, in the pop art world. <laughs> hey, uh, speaking of crippling anxiety, Todd, um, I'm suddenly feeling a little bit bashful about going to talk to our bartender. Um, oh, my gosh. That's a new one. Well, do, do you mind? All right. I gotcha. I gotcha. All right. Well, uh, sit here and manage your crippling anxiety and think of a few more Bon Mots, and we'll be back in a moment. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Hi. We want to take a moment to mention that if you're enjoying this episode, we have an archive of topics ranging from the Olympics to movie posters. Think Ghostbusters. Iconic images. Think Bigfoot. Punk music. The Ramones. Saturday morning cartoons. The Pink Panther. And failed products like OK Soda. Visit our website at twodesignerswalkintoabar.com for full episode notes and visuals, the latest blog content, and to sign up for our newsletter. Follow us on social media. We can be found on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Find the links on our website or search using the phrase, Two Designers Walk Into a Bar. Most importantly, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps more people like you find podcasts like this. And tell a friend about us. Send them a link to our podcast from your listening platform of choice. And if you're inclined, buy our merchandise. Stickers, coasters, magnets, t-shirts. We're designers. We make good stuff, and it helps support the show. Get in touch. Use the contact form on our website or send an email to hello at twodesignerswalkintoabar.com. We read every message we get. Honest. And we're available for speaking gigs. Email us to learn more. Okay, now back to the bar. All right. Welcome back, everybody. We've been talking about how Andy Warhol became Andy Warhol, where we just left off. Well, what we were talking about was how he was Truman Capote's punching bag for a while. He was, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. True. True. Um, he got the Heisman from uh, Truman Capote, um, but he was showing work, right? Yeah. 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 I mean, it sounds like, uh, as we talked about later, they became buddies. So uh, Mr. Capote didn't kill him and that which does not kill you makes you stronger, right? So Andy pushed back. Yes, and he he persevered in exhibiting drawings in and around the city. And um, notably, his first group show was in 1956 at the Museum of Modern Art. 
Wow. Okay. So his first group show is at MoMA. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Not too shabby. Um, so it sounds like, so he's doing these shoe illustrations. He's doing some magazine illustrations. So he's really got a foot in each camp, right? He's got one in his commercial art world where he's making his, it literally his millions. But then he also has... Um, a foot, obviously, in the fine art world. So he's kind of straddling low art and high art, it sounds like. He's trying. The foot in the high art just is not catching on. Okay, so maybe it's more of a toe. It is, yeah, it's a toe. It's not a toe hold. So his group show at the MoMA that we just talked about was with some fellow artists. And he took note of them. Like I said, he wanted to be kind of part of that scene, right? Robert Rauschenberg, his boyfriend, Jasper Johns, they were really, their work was inspiring Andy to expand his own artistic experimentation. They've inspired me as well. I love those guys and their work. They kind of straddle the abstract expressionism and the pop artists, right? Because they were using really graphic things kind of building on that expression of stuff sure yeah you've got rauschenberg and his combines and his collages yeah. you have jasper johns with things like his targets and his american flags, flags yeah yeah i yeah. i love and it, yeah all the encaustic work he was doing with newspaper yeah super duper cool stuff i'm such a fan yeah yeah and andy wanted to be one of them um because you know rauschenberg had the pedigree right he was part of the black mountain school that we talked about before. He was our neighbor, yep. In beautiful Black Mountain, North Carolina, yes. And uh, he did seek out Joseph Albers to study with. And uh, from all accounts, the exiled European Albers really put young Robert through his paces, too. <laughs> so careful what you wish for. Right, right, right. Um, but he, he became a pretty huge luminary in the art world, and Andy was starting. So, mm-hmm. so enough that... Uh, Rauschenberg's lover, Jasper Johns, would also be gaining attention. Um, And on the outside, set Raggedy Andy. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to, I love that so much. I know. He he got his revenge. I mean, that's why we can laugh at him now. Sure, um, sure. Here's the funny thing. Uh, Both Rauschenberg and Jasper Johns wanted nothing to do with Andy because he was, uh, quote, a lowly commercial artist, right? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's sort of like, wait a second. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, right, right. I know. I mean, really, guys? And, and uh, you know, Andy Andy was awkward, and uh, he was, uh, he was uh, homosexual, as was Rauschenberg and Jasper Johns, but yet they were military guys, and they... They were right, hiding right, it right. Sure, uh, sure. back in 1960, and uh, they thought, uh, in their words, quote, he was a bit too swishy for them. But he was clever and ambitious. That's the theme that runs through all of this. And he knew that nothing would enrage the serious art world and certainly get full attention. Like imagery that was created for normal, low-brow, so, base amusement. You mean us? Us, yeah. Exactly, us. Oh, great. Um, yeah, like he began... Uh, getting inspiration from advertisements and comic strips. And uh, as you remember in the first of this series, Lichtenstein did the same thing, Roy Lichtenstein. And uh, <laughs> yep. he started doing comic strip paintings. And Andy said, you know, they were obviously better than his. Uh, so he's like, I got to go another direction. <laughs> <laughs> I, need a, I need a new shtick. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So hence he started doing serial repetition. Um, and 
he was producing row upon row of dollar bills and green stamps and then finally soup cans. But he really liked the comic books, man. Well, just like the comic strips, again, widespread, like easy vernacular for people to identify because everybody had Bazooka Joe gum. Everybody knew a nickel or dime comic or the Sunday comics in the paper. Yeah, you you had talked about how Lichtenstein's son in the previous episode launched his career based on a dare, essentially, right? Bet you can't do something as good as this Mickey Mouse comic. But yeah, yeah. one other thing, though, and I think this goes back to Warhol knowing enough about commercial art and knowing enough about mechanical reproduction, mm-hmm. things like dollar bills or green stamps, when those come like when they're printed and produced they aren't just this one-off thing that's pre-cut that rolls off the press of course they come off in sheets they're made as multiples especially stamps that come in books and are given to you as multiple things and for those of of you who are maybe younger and don't know what snh green stamps are they're sort of like the frequent flyer miles or the hotel points of their day your loyalty cards yeah at the at the grocery store they were you could save those and then you could redeem them and get different things beyond just groceries right they had uh tupperware lawn chairs all kinds of crazy stuff appliances yeah yeah it was basically the same model as if you go to an arcade and get a ticket. Like you pay two bucks to play a game and you get three tickets, which equals nothing. So it was basically <laughs> that same model. It I was think. skee-ball at the grocery store. It was, yeah. Um, so late 1961, uh, Andy stumbled upon what is obviously one of his most famous subjects, Campbell soup cans. And he didn't paint just one. He painted... 32 of them, as a matter of fact. And what he would do, he was trying his hardest to mechanically reproduce them. So there was not as much artist hand in there. So he would project them with like an opaque projector, uh, trace them on canvas, and then apply thick, even coats of flat paint. Um, And that, you know, was really going against what the abstract expressionists were. They were about the expressive brushstrokes, right? Right. Layers of paint, gestures all over the place. Yeah, yeah. He was also using things like stencils for all these repeated details, like the Florida Lees at the edges of the Campbell Soup labels, and he used this wonderful kind of gold metallic paint. And it's so funny because from a distance, if you've ever seen these things in person, you look at them and you think, this is Campbell Soup. But then you look at it up close and you realize because he was using these stencils, he only had one stencil. So nothing yeah. was really wrapping around the can in any sort of perspective. <laughs> it's all just these yeah. sort of flat, almost almost like rubber stamp or block prints. It's really, really... But it makes it so fun because you really get these two layers. You get the sort of, again imperfections that don't matter from a distance almost like looking at a billboard like we were talking about painted on the side of a building it's like well i know that's a can of soup or a bottle of coke but then you get up close and you think this is a little bit janky (laughs) yeah that's true that's true and this was this is widely documented and you can find out so much about this but his first uh solo uh, exhibit, big one, big solo exhibit in 1962 was in July, actually in Los Angeles. <laughs> Couldn't um, <laughs> buy a buck in New York because he was a, a low-down commercial illustrator, but participated uh, in this show at the Ferris Gallery in Los Angeles, where 
He exhibited all 32 canvases. How did he get attention in L.A.? Like, the media wasn't what it is now. Did he Did no. he shop it there? How did he... He did, yeah. He, he you know, wrote, sent postcards um, to a variety of, of galleries. And this particular gallery, and probably more specifically, this particular gallery director, a guy named Irving Bloom, really thought it was something. I thought it was going to... You know, this this is new and this is fresh. And um, agreed to show all 32 varieties of Campbell soup. And what was interesting was they lined them all up like in a um, a shelf, basically. Because he, he said, can sit on the shelf. Why not? <laughs> I love that. Ironically, now, of course, the cans are in MoMA. So they're back on the East Coast and they're hung in a grid. So they're not on a shelf anymore. Unless you think about, I guess, a grocery store, then they're on like a, a series of shelves, perhaps. <laughs> right, right. And all of them are together at MoMA, too. Yes. And there's yes. a funny little story behind that. Do you know the story? No. Uh-uh. So, as I said, that um, the gallery show opened on July 9th in 1962, which, by the way, here's a fun fact for your trivia, was the same week that the first Walmart opened. <laughs> oh, wow. Wow. Plant yeah. a flag in that for consumer culture. I know. I know. I know. There you go. It couldn't have gotten any better. Um, the show at the Ferris Gallery with the iconic Campbell soup cans did pretty shitty. <laughs> it did. <He's, laughs> he, he sold only five of the works. Um, each one was about a hundred bucks a piece, by the way. And, uh, interestingly enough, one of the works went to Hollywood actor, Dennis Hopper. Oh, I could see that. I could totally yeah, see yeah. that. He was actually, uh, I learned he was actually a pretty decent avant-garde art collector, but here's the funny thing. The dealer I just mentioned a minute ago, Irving Bloom, uh, with the sale going so badly, he decided, this is a stroke of genius, that it would be worth keeping all of the paintings together as a group to be shown like that in the future. So he bought all five of the paintings back. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, that goes against... That's why they ended up at the MoMA. Then What I was thinking they could have done maybe was throw in a free can of soup with each painting purchase, <laughs> and that would add a little value, which leads me to... My next question for you about this. So what did Campbell's think? So this is all going on. It's He's talking to art galleries. He's not talking to Campbell's, but he's boosting this very well-known trade dress for these cans because if it weren't well-known, it wouldn't make sense for him to reproduce it. Right. Well, I would say that given the times, um, it was a scrappy, unknown raggedy artist that was <laughs> that was copying your trademark and um as soon as the gallery show opened um the company sent over a lawyer oh they did <laughs> okay yeah okay. they did okay great so they figured it out even in los angeles yes they did uh they did the then president and ceo of campbell's a guy named william beverly murphy he noted uh, indicated that he had some initial concern about the company's trademarks. Um, that's when they sent the lawyers over to the Ferris Gallery. So they considered a cease and desist order. And oddly enough, the son of the inventor of condensed soup, a guy named John T. Durant Jr., um, took over as chairman. 
And he was a passionate art collector and well-established in the art world, too. So, as criticism of the show mounted, and as publicity of the show mounted, yeah, the company just said, oh, we're going to pass on legal action right now. Wow, that was a stroke of luck. Yeah, well, and then it became a love fest um, because then they started courting Andy over time. You know, and a, a year or so later, they were sending him letters and free soup by the crateful. And, <laughs> and even in uh, 64, October of 64, they commissioned a silkscreen tomato soup picture from him. They introduced some promotional items, something called the super dress. Uh, you may have seen pictures of that. Oh, we can certainly yes. Post yeah, those. the Campbell soup dress. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It's a yeah. paper dress, yeah, right? With yeah. soup cans on it. Yeah, that's, oh, that's so wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, those, those were offered for a, a, a dollar plus two soup labels. But now, if you try, if you can find one, it's going to run you over $8,000 yeah, to get a paper Yeah, because they probably are dress. at the point of disintegrating. You know, oh, yeah, yeah. as we're talking, I'm thinking about he really was the perfect person to figure this out as opposed mm-hmm, to, let's mm-hmm. say, comic strips, because being a commercial artist, I think he had the designer's eye for understanding that, yes, on the one hand, this was disposable or ephemeral stuff, but on the other hand, it was beautiful work that took you know, fine skills to pull together to make it pleasing both to the client, like Campbell's Soup, and also to the person buying the soup, that there was a message there. And I think if he hadn't had that commercial background with shoe drawings and window decorating, I'm not sure he ever would have arrived at this. Yeah, yeah, who knows? Um, Because, you know, it... We certainly now have the the benefit of of history, and we appreciate that, and we know where it was all coming from. But no one knew at the time. It was just like, the hell is this? Why, you know, why would someone even want to paint this, uh, you know, everyday object, much less elevate it to you know, you know what? Thirty two version. It's it's sort of like the consumer version of a landscape. You know, it's yeah, instead yeah. of uh, more trees. <laughs> you know, yeah, uh, yeah, it's, yeah. it's like, oh, at least this is something different. Like it's it's taking something just as common as trees, but it's something man-made and ubiquitous. And it's saying, hey, there's beauty in this, too. Yeah, uh, exactly. Um, but, of course, that was uh, really weird back at that <laughs> sure. time, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I found a, a cartoon that you're going to love. And because, as you would imagine, the press also went nuts about this. And the Los Angeles Times ran this cartoon with one beatnik art lover. Oh, yeah. Saying to another, frankly, the cream of asparagus does nothing for me. But the terrifying intensity of the chicken noodle gives me a real zen feeling. (laughs) I mean, does that that just smack of like it takes a swipe at both of those Yeah, that's what I was going to say. It's a takedown of pretty much everything. Yeah. Oh, wow. (laughs) Uh, anyway, um, back to Andy's progression. He certainly uh, was looking to get the hand out of the work a lot more. So he started experimenting with silk screens and uh, removing the kind of painterly stuff, as you said before, stencils and depicted everything. Shipping labels, Coke bottles, coffee labels, 
Pillow soap boxes. Oh, yeah. Giant wooden boxes. Actual boxes. Yeah. 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 I actually, um, a funny little story. When I was in high school, we took a trip to, um, gosh, it was probably Guilford College, um, the art gallery there. Mm-hmm. And they had Andy's Mott's apple juice boxes and they were just sitting in the middle of this gallery room and uh so you know we were kind of walking around looking at stuff and pausing waiting for people and i started not knowingly just tapping on the boxes you know just like you just lean on them right and i was just <laughs> da, 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 you know and a gallery person came um sir that that's art <laughs> i remember that so distinctly uh, that that's art. Um, oh, that's okay. amazing! Yeah. yeah, but he would go on to do like uh, you know more imagery that tried to shock people from even more lowbrow um, Nile stuff and to tabloid uh, newspapers things. I mean, you've all you've seen those, right? Yeah, shocking. Uh, <laughs> one of the things that comes to mind, of course, is his electric chair series. Right, 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 right. And theoretically, he would love to do endless variations mm-hmm. of a chosen subject. And this was when he started taking on uh, real legit uh, assistance, too. Well, this goes back to <laughs> your high school adventure. So he mm-hmm. was using these techniques to ask the question of what is art? Um, yeah. Which yeah. is, you know, the same sort of thing our listeners often ask, I think, about <laughs> yeah. some of the subjects we cover or maybe the podcast itself. That's, well, you know, then we're in great company then, aren't we? Exactly. Just People just haven't realized our brilliance yet. That's true. That's true. Um, I would say, you know, we talk a lot about the Campbell's soup cans. He certainly is famous for that. But the, those did, were not famous at the time and didn't sell. But what did get a lot of attention and did sell were his portraits of Marilyn Monroe, who had just recently died. And that sent shockwaves through American popular culture. So if you think about it, like here she was like the queen of American movies, glitz and glamour who had this tragic ending and it was a perfect subject for him. Mm -hmm. Because it was tragic. It was suicide. Yeah. 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 And you know, it was beautiful. It was glamorous. Uh, She was um, for him. And it was around this time in the U S that the term pop art actually was introduced at the Symposium on Pop Art, oddly enough, organized by the MoMA. And in true form, Andy was attacked for capitulating to consumerism. Hold on a second here. So the pop and pop art means popular. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they're mad that his subjects were popular things. Right, right. I, maybe they were a little too popular, you know, <laughs> okay. a little too populous. A little too easily understood. Yeah, yeah. They were they were a little appalled by his open acceptance of market culture. And, you know, that kind of set the tone for that reception. So he served soup at the reception. <laughs> at the yeah, reception. yeah. And, and Brillo pads. Yeah, that's right. To clean up afterwards. Okay, so... Yeah. Let's shift gears slightly. So he's cranking out all of this art. Is he at the factory at this point? Where is this stuff being made? Well, not yet. Um, It's coming. Uh, And you're right. He was creating a big mess at home. And, you know, (laughs) mom was there. Mom was getting on him about it. So he had to find a studio. And a friend helped him find this old unoccupied firehouse on East 87th Street. 
And he offered the Department of Real Estate 150 bucks a month just to rent this obsolete firehouse. And he started there in 1963. Okay, let's hold, hold on a second. Let me do some uh, quick uh-huh. uh, back of the envelope math here. Uh, you know what? That's still a hell of a deal today. So it's a bit under $1,500 a month for a full New York City yes, firehouse? Yes, yes. All right, this makes me wonder what the Ghostbusters paid in rent. <laughs> yeah, true. I don't think they uh, they got a good deal like that. But he needed the space. He was starting to uh, really do multiples of things and silk screening, and uh, he did the Death and Disaster series. Work's stacking up. He needs space. Work's stacking up. And he's starting to get recognition, obviously, because of Marilyn. And he was, you know, he's obviously doing quite a bit uh, there. And a few months into his tenure at the uh, uninhabited firehouse, he was informed that it had to be vacated. So in November of that year, he found a loft on the fifth floor of 231 East 47th Street in Midtown Manhattan, which would become the first factory as we know it. Ah, I see. Okay. And... There's a lot more to that story, which I think would be great to tell on another episode. Oh, so it's a, this is a cliffhanger? Yes, yes. Wow. Okay, okay. All right. Well, if that's the case, then um, I'll tell you what. Let's think about what we should talk about next time over a fresh round of drinks. And since it's your topic, I would suggest it's your treat. Oh, I gotcha. Uh, Who didn't see that coming, right? (laughs) All right. See you later, everyone. And uh, join us next time at the bar as we continue this conversation. This is Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. I'm Andrew Pryor, and every week I bring you the wonderful and fabulous people involved in French food, whether they're here in France like me or from around the world. Each week, we dive into a specific topic, be it a French dish, an ingredient, or a French cuisine cooking technique. My guests are all about French food, so come join me on fabulously delicious the french food podcast bon app two designers walk into a bar is a proud member of the evergreen podcasts network for more information about our show or to discover more podcasts you'll enjoy visit evergreenpodcasts.com